I'm sure many of us have stood out outside on a clear evening and looked up at the stars and wondered maybe, if, maybe at length or maybe just in passing, what would it take to get there? What would it take to, to get there, actually reach out that, that far? And, and I'm sure many, if not all of you, know that's actually not just the stuff of science fiction. Uh, back in 1977, NASA launched Voyager 1 out into our, our solar system. And since 1977, Voyager 1, the, the, probably the most famous of NASA's probes, has traveled some 11, get this, think about the zeros, 11 billion miles since 1977, averaging a speed roughly some 38,000 miles per hour. It took about three months for it, for Voyager, to travel the distance roughly between our sun uh, and us. It took about three months for it to do that. Uh, and with you do the math, that then means as fast as Voyager 1 is traveling, it would still take 80,000 years for Voyager 1 to move the distance from our sun to the next star. 80,000 years, as fast as it is going. Now, the reason I bring that up is simply this. It would seem that as amazing and wondrous as our technology may be, it's just not going to get us there. When you think in terms of interstellar travel, reaching the stars, covering that distance, the way we're going about it is not going to get us there. The reason I bring that up is to transition into this. Many in, in, in our time, in our, in our culture, rightfully are crying out for peace, for racial harmony and unity. And those are worthy, beautiful goals and aspirations. but the way we're going about it won't get us there. Do you see? The way we're going about it won't get us there. We need something new, something incredibly new. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, looking at Acts chapter 2, uh, this is the account of what is oftentimes referred to as the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2. Uh, this, if you're trying to find that, this is after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. You have the book of the Acts is how it's oftentimes referred to. And we're in Acts chapter 2, going to read verses 1 to 13. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Here now the Word of God. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, 
Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Can we pray for a moment before we go any further? Oh, Lord God, Father in heaven, Search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Those words of the psalmist, may they be ours. Those words of the psalmist, may they be ours. As we come to you as honestly as we can, recognizing that even as we say, oh, would you reset our vision and agenda, we come with a vision and agenda. So we need your mercy. We need your work. We need the movement of the Holy Spirit within our minds and hearts more than we can even say. We plead with you now. Teach and train us. Move us, change us, shape us. Amen. Well, as as ugly as bad as the impact of COVID-19 has been these last several weeks and and months, and we don't even know, of course, there's a lot being reported right now as to how far through the woods are we even at this point, physically, economically, socially, just just all kinds of of impact. As as rough as that has been and may well yet continue to be, it could be a lot worse. It could be a lot worse worse. I want you to think with me. I don't know how many of you have read the history books of some of the ancient plagues, okay? Imagine if this is, we're not just talking about a coronavirus. Imagine if we're talking about one of the ancient plagues and something along the lines of that, that would sweep through continents, decimate indiscriminately, of course, whole populations, fill the morgues, and lay to waste whole societies. Imagine a scenario where you might wake up in the morning with just a hint of a symptom and be dead by nightfall. There are records of that kind of an an effect by the plagues of ancient days. Now, into this horrific scenario, this bleak picture that I'm painting, imagine now word that comes from from a village far, far up in the hills of a cure. And it turns out, after much investigation, this is not just one cure among many possibilities, like you can go here and here and here. No, no, it's, it's, this, it's this one. It's, it's this one cure, this one sole solution for this global, universal pandemic. That creates quite a cause and a call, if you will, for that village, doesn't it? 
at that point, and for the rest of the world to pay heed if they will have but ears to hear. I bring this scenario up, and I'm trying to paint this picture because it, it seems as though there's a strong corollary to where we are today in wrestling through and talking through and sadly screaming through at times um, questions of racial injustice and racial reconciliation and what does all that mean and all the, the, the terms and every, everything else. We think in terms, I've just put it this way, of the pandemic of the sin of racism and the hope, the sole hope of the gospel of Jesus and the charge of the church to take living it out in word and deed, that message into the world, it seems like there's, there's really not hard to make the case that there is a parallel, there is a corollary between that scenario I painted and where we are today. Not at all. And in fact, that's actually what the Bible is showing us from Genesis to the maps. From the beginning to the end, there is there's a theme that we see again and again and again, that there is actually just not many possibilities, but one sole solution, one sole solution, one sole hope that we have to address every ill, ultimately, the, ultimately, that we have. And it's the gospel. And it's the gospel, and it comes out even in this text with, with sharp clarity in this text. In fact, you, I think you could put it this way. In Christ, God's salvation flows to all peoples. In Christ, God's salvation flows to all peoples, and the church must show this to the world. In Christ, God's salvation flows to all peoples, and the church must, must show this, take this, live this to the world. Now, that begs the question, how can the church hear and heed such a call? What would it mean? What would it look like? Well, that's a whole symposium, and volume upon volume has been written on such, such things. But just for, this, you know, for the time that we have, it seems like perhaps it might behoove us to go to Acts 2, to go to this passage, and allow it to speak to these very questions. Because what we see here is that when you look at these three things, it's there in your outline if you brought the, the bulletin with you, you've printed it. If you consider these three things, first, the, the, this day of Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and we, as we wrestle with the context of Pentecost and the wonder of Pentecost and the meaning of Pentecost, it helps us to understand what it would mean for the church to take this message forth to all the nations that God's salvation comes, flows in Christ to all peoples as we wrestle with these things and take heed to them. Let's look at these three things in turn. First, the context, that's the first thing, the context of Pentecost, meaning what was going on, where was this, who was there, what transpired, just, you know, context, context, What's, what do we have? Well, it, it takes place, Pentecost was a festival. It, it, was, it was a festival. It was oftentimes referred to as the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest because it was the celebration of the end of the wheat harvest, 50 days. Pentecost comes from the Greek word 50, okay? And so it's, it was timed 50 days every year, an annual celebration after the Passover. So that's what's going on. It's this annual feast ingrained, just interwoven into Jewish culture. 
And that's why you have so many people present there in the city of Jerusalem at the time. It's why the, 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 the roles are swelling, if, if you will, and, and the streets are, are filled with, with people. The temple precincts are, are filled with people as well. You can, you can see it there in terms of the, the interplay, what's going on there, reading between the lines, that some of the people that are being described here who, who hear and are witnesses to what takes place with the, the followers of Jesus, some of them were visitors to the city of Jerusalem and the temple for the festival, and that no few of them, certainly, from all parts of the Roman world. But many were also residents, Jewish people from other nations in the Roman world who had taken up residence there in Jerusalem simply because, in a sense, they had come home. That, that was the idea. They had come home and they'd taken up. So that's who's there. That's who's there. And, and in the midst of all of this, you have the disciples of Jesus, possibly the full 120 described earlier in chapter 1, who are assembled there, and they are waiting as they have been instructed to, okay? Which speaks to, just a quick aside, speaks to our need, the fact that they are waiting, waiting as they've been instructed, speaks to their need, our need. The disciples have been given this new charge to take this message in word and deed out into the whole world which meant the Spirit was going to come in a new way, more deeply, more broadly than ever before, just as Jesus had told them. They're waiting. They're waiting. In a sense, they're under orders to do so. If you go back and look at chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, and while staying with them, He, so them are the disciples, He is Jesus, while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So these, this was a promise uh, from the ancient promise uh, delivered through the prophet Joel that the Holy Spirit was going to come upon his people. John the Baptist picks up on this and predicts this, saying that the, the Christ is going to come and baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. Jesus Jesus speaks to this, and then upon His ascension to the Father, fulfills it in sending the Spirit upon His people. And that's what you see here, this, this record here in Acts to the actual accomplishment of that promise. So anyway, the point being, the context of Pentecost points us to the faithfulness of God. See, because the whole, where this whole thing is coming from is a fulfillment of God's rich and deep wondrous promises. So the very context of Pentecost points to the rich, abiding faithfulness, great faithfulness of God, which has not changed. He is still faithful. He is still enabling and equipping His people to do any and everything He puts before them, which is the antidote to our fear. And you're thinking, wait, where'd you? That seems like out of left field. Why are you talking all of a sudden about fear? Think with me. Think with me to the degree to which our fears fuel and feed our arguments, our tension, our anger with one another. When these heavy issues, coronavirus, how to handle that, 
and interracial peace, harmony, racial reconciliation. Think of how much our fears fuel and feed the tension as we try and engage with one another on these things because we're afraid. We're afraid of what we might have to lose if we're going to really move forward in these things. We're afraid of what we might have to learn and the change that might have to come even to our own lives and our own ways of thinking. We're afraid. My friends, followers of Jesus have no reason to be afraid when you consider the greatness of His faithfulness that the very context of Pentecost shows us. So such such as the depth, the, the wonder of His promises and His faithfulness to these promises. Again, in Christ, we have to say this again, in Christ, God's salvation is poured out to all peoples. The church must then take that to the world. And we can. We can. We have nothing to fear, nothing to be afraid of. Great is His faithfulness. Great is His faithfulness. Well, that then takes us to the second point, moving from the context of Pentecost to the wonder of Pentecost, the miracles of what we see here, the supernatural signs of what we see taking place here. So let's read verses 1 to 4 again. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, this doesn't happen every day. Nothing like this had ever happened. Imagine you were there. Imagine you were, you were a witness to these things. You're not going to forget it. It's going to have an impact upon you. Just if you just all, even if you don't really, if you will experience it, as the 120 did, but you're just watching it. You don't forget this. It's going to rattle your cage. It's going to shift some things around. Let's think about these these three supernatural signs. Uh, The the first, the, the miraculous sound. So Luke is at pains to try and say it wasn't actually a wind. It was something like a wind, and not just a gentle breeze blowing through the trees, but a strong, it was something like a strong, violent wind that came coursing through the place. Now, that's important to recognize because in the Old Testament, wind such as this signified as and pointed to the living presence of God, the very presence of God, His, His Spirit, His breath coming to give life, think of the breath of life that comes to Adam in Genesis, or maybe not just life for the first time, but perhaps resurrected life. Think in terms of, of, of Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones in the valley. It's the presence of God to bring life, the wind. And then you see not just the miraculous sound, but the miraculous sight of these, this fire this fire that comes and these flames of fire alighted, up, pardon the pun, alighted upon each person present there and, and the wonder of that. And, and again, imagine seeing this, seeing this and the effect this has upon you. And, and again, this also in the Old Testament, fire, not just the wind, but the fire points to the presence of God. But here, 
Here the fire would indicate purity and holiness and his judgment and his justice, such as the living presence of God. So you've got the wind, you have the fire, or the old King James, I think, says the cloven tongues of fire. So you have the wind blowing, the fire appearing, and then the miraculous speech. Now let's be clear as to what is and is not happening here. This is not, as, as uh, is alluded to there at the very end of the text, this is not a result of intoxication. This is not a result of drunkenness. This, this is not a matter of, of Luke and the, well, Luke's witnesses that he's relying on for this account. It's not a matter of the people there being confused as though uh, it was incoherent speech, but somehow they thought, oh, it kind of sounds like, you know, language. No, no, no. Nor was it, just to be specific, nor was it a miracle of hearing. It was a miracle of speaking. It was a miracle of speaking that in, in this moment, these men and women were given a supernatural ability to speak earthly languages that were readily understood by the people there representing all the nations and tribes and peoples listed here in Acts 2. Again, imagine you're there and you're seeing this happen. And the impact upon you, I mean, little, little wonder that they're amazed and perplexed and astonished. There's several words, synonyms that are piled up upon one another here in Luke 2. I mean, excuse me, Acts 2. Of course they were. This is likely how it unfolds. They're, they hear that the sound of that strong, violent wind they're drawn to that. They come to investigate what was it, and then they hear the mighty works of God spoken in their own native languages. Wow. My friends, the, 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 this is the, the wonder of Pentecost, and the wonder of Pentecost points us towards the power of the Lord. The power of of the living God. Now, why is that important for us to recognize, especially in connection with this larger discussion of how to think through and process and live out what does the gospel say pertaining to race and racial injustice and tension, all these things? Why is it important to speak to not just the faithfulness of God, but the power of God? Well, here's why. Because many will say, and I know many of us even myself, am tempted to say what happens here on Sunday doesn't carry over to Monday. What happens in the sanctuary doesn't translate over into the everyday stuff. It's naive to say that this gospel, which, yeah, it's good and comfy and cozy and makes me feel good, it's, it's naive to say that that actually has the power to save, save, and ripple out from there in such rich, transformative ways. It's naive to say that you could say that that's actually the hope for a culture, for a nation, for a people. I mean, surely our divides are too great. Surely 
The issues are too complex. Surely the wounds are too deep. I ask you, take all of that, own it. I'm trying to as well. Take all that and own it, and then bring it alongside this question. Would the witnesses of what we're reading of here in Acts 2 buy into your cynicism and mine? What would they say, those who were present there that day, and observe these things? Would they have such a truncated view of the power of Jesus to work? I think you know the answer to the question, right? Again, in Christ, God's salvation is poured out for all peoples, and the church must take that into the world, that news into the world, in word and deed. Which then takes us to the third point, which is probably the most challenging. I'm going to pick up where we left off in verses 5 to 13 and consider the meaning of Pentecost. What does all this about? Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, And visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. As a, the very end, I just got to say, as a lousy answer to a really good question. It's a really good question. What? Does this mean? And clearly, this is the emphasis, the, the tongues, the languages, that sign, that miracle is the emphasis of the text. That's where Luke is drawing our attention to. As wondrous as the other two are, that's where he camps out and presses us on. So what do we do with that? Well, in order to really grapple with that, we've got to go back to the tragedy of Babel, which is why we had that read earlier in the service there in in Genesis, the tragedy of Babel, where we read the account of the scattering of the nations, the scattering of of the people, the rebellion of the peoples, right? So you have this unified group of people who are giving all that they have to build this city in a way that is running completely counter to God's creational intent for His image bearers in this world. Completely in the other direction. This is the, the, the tragedy of Babel is, is exhibit A of human autonomy, of trying to live our lives independent with our back turned Not to say I'm turning from, sorry, but, you know, back turned from the living God. It's exhibit A. Now, how does the Lord respond to this? He doesn't ignore it. He engages it. 
He comes down, right? Beautiful irony there. They're trying to build high, high, high. He has to come down just to look at it. He comes down and moves and speaks, but beyond that, he confuses their languages and disperses and scatters the peoples. We can't make sense of Acts 2 unless we understand the tragedy of Babel. We cannot understand the gathering of the nations until we understand the scattering of the nations because that's what we have here in Acts 2, the gathering of the once scattered nations. What, what the Lord wants us to see here is that here at Pentecost, with the outpouring of the Spirit, it is the reversal of the curse. It is the unraveling of Babel. Again, that's clearly Luke's emphasis here. That's what he's, you don't want to, in the midst of everything else that we ought to study and ought to contemplate in terms of what's transpiring there at Pentecost, there's so much there. There's a whole sermon series in Acts 2. But with all those other things to consider, we must not lose sight of the emphasis of the passage, which is these languages being spoken in a supernatural way as a sign of the reversal of the curse of Babel, a sign of the kingdom breaking into this dark and confused world of God's order, of God's way, of His rule and realm breaking in through the darkness, His restored order coming finally, at least partially in that moment, pointing towards what's coming in full when the kingdom comes in full at the return of Jesus. The meaning, the meaning of Pentecost points us towards God's purposes for His people. All His people. No matter the racial, cultural divides. All His people. God's unshakable purposes for all His people. His vision, His agenda, if I can put it that way, that the lost community of humanity would be recovered. I'm not saying it's all of His agenda. I'm not saying it's all of His vision, but it's a key part of it. It's a key component of it, that the lost community of humanity would be recovered. That is His vision, His agenda. Here's the question. Is it ours? That's His desire. Is it ours? Is it ours? It's a very challenging question. You know, there's so much being written and said, sometimes helpfully, more often harmfully, about good, right, peaceful protests being hijacked by violent riots and looting. As one commentator that I respect put it this way, we ought to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We ought to be able to support the peaceful protests, but to be able to speak against the violence at the same time and not get one confused necessarily with, with the other. 
But here's the, the question that I will tell you I, I have struggled with for myself for, for some period of time and has really come to be quite acute in recent weeks. Yes, to be sure, there are some parties in our culture who would desire to hijack good causes. But in what ways are my own agendas and priorities hijacking the Lord's priorities and agendas? And surely, as Christ's disciples who read this book about, you know, the sinful brokenness of our hearts, you know, it might just be possible that you and I might have agendas and visions that are opposed to His and are, you know, you could put it in this sense, hijacking His even while we proclaim to be His followers. And the, the depth of the struggle is we might be blind to it. Do you see? Let me just be a a little bit more explicit. To the degree that our primary concern right now, to the degree that our first, the first thing we worry about when we think about unrest in our nation right now, to the degree that the first thing that we're concerned about and worried about and that keeps us up at night, and that we fight with other people about, are our rights, our culture, our heritage, our history, our nation, power. My friends, to the degree that that's the first thing, we have slipped into idolatry. or as the Old Testament prophets said, spiritual adultery. To the degree that those good things have become first things, we have fallen into idolatry and are hijacking our Lord's own agenda. Pentecost was a visible demonstration of the unraveling of the curse of Babel, the breaking in of the kingdom of God. We as His disciples, if indeed we call Him ourselves, His disciples, His followers, recognizing His longing and His desire for His people of all races and all cultures should be the first, the first, to labor towards these things, to pray for these things, to put effort into these things, to sacrifice, to lay down our rights and preferences towards these ends, to labor, and to the degree that they are not happening and perhaps even being violated, not just labor, but lament, weep. Weep over our land. Weep over the pain. Weep. And let our hearts be broken. Again, because in Christ, God's salvation is poured out upon all the peoples. His church must take that into the world. Now, 
I'm going to come, let me circle back to this because I teased up against it earlier, so I'm ending, landing the plane here. Is this even possible? Are we speaking here now of a utopian mindset somehow? If you'll bear with me, I want to make a lesser to greater argument, okay? Uh, Stephen Ambrose, much revered and well-deserving so, so uh, historian, um, wrote in this little book some years ago called Comrades of the striking friendship between three World War II veterans. Now, these three men had a lot in common, but there was a lot that set them apart as well. On the one hand, yes, they were all three World War II veterans. They were all also fought at D-Day, however, on different sides. <laughs> on the one hand, you have uh, John Howard, who fought with the British. On the other hand, you have Dick Winters, who fought with the Americans. But on the other side, you have Hans von Luck, who was a German, high-ranking German official, uh, German army official. And yet, all that said, these men had a shocking, wondrous respect, admiration, and friendship with one another in the years following the war. Now, Ambrose writes of this, and I want to read to you a, a paragraph out of his book because it really is quite striking. Ambrose says, and again, this is a classroom setting he's referring to, each year they would put on their show relaying stories and insights for my World War II class. One time, a student, shaking with indignation, demanded to know how Hans could have fought for Hitler. When Hans protested, he had been a regular army officer since 1927 and never a Nazi or a SS, the student began reciting the crimes of the German army. He pointed his finger at Hans, nearly shouting, saying Hans must have known about this or that atrocity, almost hinting that Hans must have been involved. John Howard stepped in. This is the British officer. He spoke directly to the student, telling him he had no idea what he was talking about, that Hans was an honorable man, and it was absurd to accuse him of criminal activity. He said, those of us lucky enough to live in the democracies do not have the right to cast stones at those who are unlucky enough to be caught in a Nazi nation. Dick Winters was there. This is the American. He too spoke up in Hans's defense and lectured the student on what he didn't know about the war. What a scene this is. Here are two of the best company commanders in the Allied force with elite companies with British, one British glider-born and the other American airborne, rising to defend the good name of a high-ranking German officer in front of an audience of American students. And keep in mind, just a few years before, if given an opportunity, two of those men wouldn't have hesitated to shoot and kill the other and vice versa. And yet, something's happened. Now, Ambrose makes zero mention of any faith commitments, and I have no reason to believe there are any involved which then gets the wheels in my little head turning. And here's where that lesser to greater than argument starts forming. If such respect and admiration and kinship and friendship could come about between such men with such a history and such a past, how much more so in the body of Christ as we start thinking about just skin tone and cultural differences? Do you see where the logic, do you see where this is going? When you consider that we as Jesus' followers, red, yellow, black, and white, have, have, have embraced the same gospel story that tells us, that unites us, that tells us of, of a shared humanity and a shared depravity, of the need for the same Savior 
who has put upon us the same charges regarding his commands, his commission, and we rely upon the same Spirit, how much more, how much more so, how much more cause and encouragement do we have towards true reconciliation, unity, harmony, one between another? And friends, to the degree to which we embrace this, it will change us. Not often all at once. Typically, it can, oftentimes, it can take years, depending on how much you've got to process. But it can change us from the inside out. How we relate one to another can begin to really be transformed. And the world starts to take notice and is drawn, not to us, but to Jesus, the one who is doing this work within us. Draw not to us, but to Jesus. And the whole world begins to see this is the hope, this is the prayer, this is salt and light, this is a city on a hill at work. The whole world begins to see that indeed the Christ is the one true hope that we have and answers the greatest longings of anyone's hearts. Can we pray? Lord, thank you for this account. Thank you for showing us so powerfully, so dramatically that in the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus, your Son, your salvation flows to all peoples, and it's so clear that we must take this out into the world, this message, not just saying it, but believing it, and not just believing it, but living it. Thank you for this passage. Oh, we ask that you'd help us to hear and see anew with our mind's eye what was happening there, that any doubt and misgiving that we might have about, well, what did this happen? Is it real? Can we, is it history? Help us to really put our feet down and say yes, yes. That you would help us to wrestle and to reckon with the implications of these things, no matter how hard that may be, no matter how challenging that may be, no matter what it might cost us. We ask that you would uh, point us towards your purposes for us, that we would marvel and our hearts would sing the idea of the gathering of the scattered. You are Lord. Your agenda has to set ours, not ours setting yours. And we confess here this morning it's so often we get that reversed. You are Lord. And so we labor in your name and we lament where these things are not coming to pass. We ask that you would encourage our hearts and embolden us as we go forth into the fields of service that you've called us into this week. We pray these things in your name. Amen.